Hello, welcome to LAMP, the Life and Math Podcast, where I shine a light on mathematicians and the work they do, as well as on pathways to success and happiness in life. Please visit lifeandmath.com to find about all that's happening at Life and Math. Enjoy the interview. Hello, welcome to the Life and Math Podcast, where I shine a light on mathematicians and the work they do. This is the second half of my interview with Dr. Alicia Prieto. Um, Dr. Prieto, thanks for joining us again. Thank you so much. So it was, it was a delightful first half, got to hear plenty of things. Um, now we're going to dive into Dr. Prieto's math. So you are an applied mathematician. We're, we're piling them up. I was worried at the start that we have nothing but, but pure mathematicians. Um, but we, we, I probably are, I think maybe the fourth applied mathematician. Um, actually, I, got, I guess I'll have to start branching out in a second because you are another uh, mathematician who studies biology. So, so talk about about applied math and your applied math. What, what do you do and where in the biological spectrum uh, do you fall? So I, I think this is going to be like hard that way because um, I consider myself somebody that likes math and looks around the world for interesting problems. And by interesting, uh-huh. I mean what interests me. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Very like, so um, I can do well, actually, yeah, then, then, then switch it, do what you're about to do and say, you know, how do you approach it? So you're a mathematician, Get, yeah. get, get, do it from your own view. Yeah, get so uh, as a mathematician, like past my dissertation, because that was topic like that was you know negotiated with my advisor. What I do now is just seriously, I look at like my first uh, semester at my job, I went to the biology department, knocked on the doors and said, do you have problems for me? Mm-hmm. And some gave me problems that I wasn't interested in and I didn't follow up through and some gave me problems I was. So then I had to learn. So I don't, I do not know a lot of biology coming into the problem. So I had, I, which is really good for me because I like learning. Like, mm-hmm. like, like on the, on the live part of the podcast, I said, I really enjoy my work at Starbucks because I had to learn a lot, right? And you have to just learn things. So I, I, I think that more than math and more than biology, what I like is learning stuff. Mm-hmm. So learning about a problem and then thinking about what is the best modeling tool I have for this. Um, I have ended up doing a lot uh, of agent-based modeling and individual-based modeling, and we can talk about what that is. But that's not the only thing I've done. Like I've also done differential equations, uh, models, and other kinds of modeling because I try to see what would be the best for what I'm doing. Um, and lately, I've been doing some data science, even though I don't think I understand it really well. But I'm I'm learning the data science and the the um, algorithms behind it. Um, so that I can use them for something, but always with an actual um, problem in mind. So I have this problem, like that's not gonna work with what I know. So I gotta learn some math about it. So like I, I even have recently, thanks to a wonderful friend I have, Pamela Harris, uh, Dr. Pamela Harris. Uh, she, uh, we, uh, I published something in graph theory. So whatever. So like, because I also found it interesting. And because when I presented my dissertation to her, she was like, huh, I wonder if we can do those same things, but in a graph. And I'm like, I guess we could. And then we started looking at graphs and stuff like that. So I, I think I only, I like, my motivation is what is a good problem, which is something that I, that I think it's great, especially if you're not in a place that you have to produce or die. So, uh, but if you're in a place that you have to produce or die, like I do not recommend this approach because it takes a while, but I'm not in a place that I have to produce or die. So I, yeah, it's a very comfortable place. So that's, that's a good, so if, if listeners aren't understanding that, what she's referencing is, you know, you get a tenure track job at, at any number of places, 
Well, it's tenure track. You're not tenured yet. So you've got a certain amount you need to publish in order to present a good enough case to get tenure. So there's serious pressure and has been, uh, <clears throat> pardon me, as has been talked about a lot of times on this, there's no such thing as just an abstractly good or bad feature. It's good for or bad for certain things. Yeah. So in this case, Dr. Prieto's approach is bad for getting stuff out quickly because yeah. you got to go learn stuff. Who knows what you need? You, you, you don't even know what tools you need at the start. Um, there are upsides, which I'm sure we're going to talk about in a second. Um, so yeah. and actually, I think it's refreshing and fascinating because I think it's, it's, and probably because of that producer die mentality, at least in part, it's rare. Very few people have a, a sort of a pure approach of looking, just trying to find interesting problems and doing stuff. Um, part of the huge upside is you can do cool stuff and you see things differently than people. Because what happens is when you work in a community and like everyone works on convexity and on this yep. sort of high dimensional problem convexity, well, you get really good at your techniques, but you all see the world the same way. Yep. Whereas when you come from a totally different place, you might try stuff that people in the field think are stupid and they would never try it, but sometimes it works and all of a sudden like stuff gets proved. Okay, so go go on, this is great. This is delightful. That's, I think that that's exactly what what, my, what I do. Like, I mean, I, I, I don't find, I, I also, I'm in a part of the career where I'm like slowing down my research, um, mm -hmm. hopefully to to pick it up soon. But but uh, for the first part of it, I was just like, yeah. I wonder, like I attended a, a talk on, um, on the biology department that a biomedical engineer from Akron uh, mm -hmm. came and did about bones. And I, I, I tell my students this because it's important that they know how ignorant I am. Uh, that I thought before her talk, I really thought that bones were like plastic, like they're just there, like there's nothing happening. Like there's just, they're just there, right? But they're not. <laughs> Turns out there's all sorts of things, right? So I learned that there's like two different cells, uh, one that goes and like eats bone, one that goes and like puts new bone, and then one that eats bone. So like three different cells. and like mathematically, that is the same, like the one that eats bones to me is the same as the immune cell that I did on my dissertation, mm -hmm. going around and eating. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a Pac-Man, right? So it looks the same, right? Mathematically is the same. So I, I get to learn the biology and then abstract it back and see like, do I know this uh, as an abstract system? Do I, have, do I have familiarity with it? And if not, what do I need so that I can get familiarity with it? And I just have a lot of fun and learn a lot of things. So that's yeah. Part of part of the plus of, of your um, sort of deep, pure background in terms of even before you were maybe more formal, but you're doing the IMO training, the, the math Olympiad stuff, and then spending the couple of years in Mexico, then going on to Texas and then then the PhD is you got a lot of depth. Sometimes applied people don't have that much uh, pure depth. And I yeah. do think there's something freeing about that. So I'm speaking certainly from my bias. I came from biomedical engineering and I came into math because I was annoyed at not knowing the math behind stuff. And I really wanted to get enough depth so that I could read the papers and actually know like, what is a Hilbert space? And like, why does it matter? And how do these different things actually add up to then hopefully go and do some more applied stuff. So I'm sure it helps you to be able to take that approach that you have such depth. Yeah, no, it, it actually really does like, like I've done even problems where like my uh, game theory thing that like you can apply it to evolutionary biology and you're like, oh yeah, I remember those concepts. And like, even if I'm not completely familiar because I haven't done like game theory in, I hadn't done it for a long, long time. I, I was at a, at, a, at a workshop where we were doing modeling cancer and somebody started talking about evolutionary bi biology and game theory. And I was like, 
oh yeah, we can work on that. Like I understand that. I I remember those concepts and we can put them there. And we did a little bit of that. So it's been fun to do that. Like you get to learn a lot of things. So. That that breadth helps. So that, that's part of the reason why conferences and other things exist is to go, you're not going to master any subject at a conference, but you go to hear about a ton of things because mm-hmm. you want to just get, and especially uh, my opinion is become good at at least one thing, at least once. And once you've gone at least somewhat deep one time and you get enough breadth in a bunch of things, you can do sort of what you're describing, which is now you can bounce. Like, you know, sort of what the process of, and that's what a PhD is supposed to do, frankly, is you get that one really deep experience so that you know how to carry things through to finish and you've got some breadth and then now you can go attack what you like, like go, go teach yourself things you're interested in. And, and yeah. 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 That I think, and I, I don't think it's for everybody. I think it, uh, the ADHD that I suffer from, uh, suffer, like actually enjoy, it helps me like jump from one problem to the other, right? Like, like I, I would not be happy just doing one thing. I, I like to be doing many very different things because it helps my mind work better, like move from one to the other. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the know yourself. So, so yes. this is this is not a one size fits all. I mean, there, there yes. are there are people for whom it is better to, and, and people who say like, I really want to make the unifying theory of physics, and I just gonna I'm just gonna work like hack at, at differential geometry and algebraic geometry and just go deep and deep and deep, and that's what's gonna suit me. Fine. Like the the point is that there's there's not a one size fits all. So yes. so figure out are you a Dr. Prieto or are you something different? Like and and well, likely you're not a Dr. Prieto. You're whoever you are. So yeah, go but- go do your stuff. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So I think the first problem that we that, that I could talk about was my dissertation problem, like my, sure, yeah. my PhD. And, and the problem was that, that um, a biomedical engineer, he's doing experiments in which he grabs uh, a little tiny implant, like it's a circle, and he puts it, uh, he coats it with two different proteins, albumin and fibrinogen, um, and a mixture of them. And then he puts it in the gut, in the gut of some rat. And then measure uh, if there's infection, if there's not, what was the immune response, how many takes them out and sees, uh, measures how many neutrophils, which are a white blood cell, uh, were in the surface, and all of these things. So we have a lot of measurements. Um, yeah, this I is do- only because I can say something about it because I know about it. So for listeners, when you stick stuff in the body, the body thinks it's an enemy, right? And so it has responses, the immune response. So if you put an implant, one of the central problems with implants is that they get attacked. Your body thinks it's, it is a foreign agent and it yeah. thinks it's a problem. So there's a lot that goes into trying to figure out how to make this thing uh, as inert as possible. So the body isn't in constant inflammation, isn't constantly attacking it. And that's what you're describing. Yes. So I think I, I should remember this, but I don't. Um, so one of the proteins that you would use would not produce enough immune response. And that's also a problem because uh, no matter how much you clean it, you, they're gonna, there's going to have some bacteria. And then you're gonna co- go in, and there's gonna be some bacteria, and you don't want the immune response, the immune system, to realize. Oh, sh-. I also have very bad words when I speak, so I'm, <laughs> we get like blipped off. Uh, but you, you don't want the immune response to be like, oh my god, like there's something really bad happening. Once the infection is like really big, and the bacteria has formed something called a biofilm, like you do not want that to happen. You want to attack it before that. So you want the body to recognize that it's something foreign but not something like not carbon-based or not something like terrible, right? So you cover it with a protein so you have the adequate immune response. So that's what we were, we had all that data. And what we did, we constructed a cellular automata model, which really does look like a Pac-Man, like a really big square where there's some, uh, in every little square, there's some amount of uh, bacteria and the neutrophils come around and they 
uh, move with greater probability to places that there's more bacteria and then they start eating the bacteria or killing the bacteria because neutrophils also like produce some sort of acid that like eliminates the bacteria. Um, I will say something about working with biologists if you're a mathematician. I think we're very used as mathematicians to have truths that have been truth for a long, long time. And when you work with immunologists, these people change their mind every, like as often as they change their clothes. So like you gotta be, like the, the reason we uh, decided to use a cellular automata model, a, a, an agent-based model, is because they're really easy to, to change and to manipulate. Mm -hmm. Because this, this Dr. Tang, great guy, uh, would come one day and be like, well, I think this is what's happening. And then they, he would come a week later and be like, you know, never mind, this is what's happening. And then two weeks later, you remember when I said that this was happening? It's really not that, it's this. And I'm like, you know, if I was doing an actual like PDE model, which is what we were going to approach first, like you changing your mind means my PDE now no longer converges or like it does something really weird. Like I have to change it completely and all the analysis that I did is irrelevant. Whereas every time she would come, I would just erase a line of code and fix and change it for another one and we could move on. So like- That's so great actually. That, that's yeah. that's really, that, that's fabulous. So I, I, I can't as often chime in on the apply stuff, but that's a really important point that has come out between this interview and some of the other interviews with other uh, mathematical biologists, which is the, when you're constructing your model, so you, you got some problem, you care about it, you should make your model as detailed, this came out in the Sean Ryan interview in particular, as detailed as you have certainty. So, so if you're doing physics, and there's a big difference between physics and a lot of biological research, mm -hmm. like if you're doing a particle collider or some, who knows what, some quantum experiment, like you're trying to do quantum computation, you can control your environment to an incredible degree. And so your mathematics, you get, you can make really intricate and you, it's worth investing that much time. Yeah. But if you are in a biological setting where things are messy and, and actually there's two levels of mess. Let's take the, the Wanda Stahalski interview because she does how cells move in really mm -hmm. great detail. And she does do PD models. Well, there it's more like a physics problem in a sense because she really can get into the details and things aren't gonna change radically and she's really trying to see how what the mechanisms of, of fibrils and other things moving and so it's worth her building this incredibly complex model doing all the coding because she's got certainty whereas mm -hmm. on the level you're talking about there's so much more uncertainty and yes. because of that uncertainty what you described is appropriate you cannot it's inappropriate it's it's like a um, uncertainty principle because you've got so much uncertainty on what's happening you can't build models that are too rigorous you you, you can't look for results that are more specific than you have knowledge about inputs or, or uh, data. Exactly, exactly. And the other thing is the models that we were building kind of needed to be stochastic, kind of could not be deterministic. And what I mean with this is like, I, the example I always give my students is if you have a pre Petri dish and you mm -hmm. put a bunch of food and then you put a cell in the middle and then you do a, an exactly identical experiment, uh, the path that the cell is gonna walk eating the food in both things are gonna be completely different. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's not gonna happen when I throw the same pencil from the same high, uh, at the same temperature and everything. Like that's gonna be the same thing. The, the pencil does the same thing on, on, the, on their identical conditions, whereas the cells do completely different things on their identical conditions, right? And in some modeling, it's worth 
uh, including that stochasticity. And in other ones, it's not. In other ones, you can talk, uh, you can actually say, you know what, I'm just gonna uh, manage the general or the average behavior or something like that, right? Or right now, it's like a boom, right? Like everybody's talking about COVID, like, yeah. So, uh, so actually, that's perfect because Dr. So the interview that we'll post right before yours is Dr. Daniela Calvetti, who does some of this agent-based modeling. She talked about her COVID model for Ohio, and and it's exactly one of these sorts of things where you can you could have in some parallel universe construct COVID to start the exact same way, but it's going to move differently. But yeah. the basic results might be the same probabilistically in terms of of how it moves out. Like it might go to this county, County A first yep. in, in this universe and county being another but overall it's going to be about the same um yes. yeah yeah so when you do one of those models you uh those agent-based models if, even though every run that you take of the model you get different results you can like do a hundred thousand of them and take the average and see what on average happens but also you can track the outliers right what is the worst case scenario? And because you, you do it a hundred thousand times, you can actually find that worst case scenario where you would not find it on deterministic models. So one, of, one very good example is on uh, deterministic models is uh, when you have a, a model that tells you what happens to a fox and a rabbit. Like, fox eat rabbit, right? Well, what are we yes, I actually have foxes rabbit? outside my door. Every day I have a fox walk by my door and yes, he's, he goes after squirrels where I live, but yes. I have two giant Rottweilers so nothing walks around <laughs> But anyway, so if you have a, a, a fox and a rabbit and you're gonna model the populations of fox and rabbits in a deterministic model, even if there's very few rabbits, uh, if there's, like, I mean, if there's two rabbits, the population can still go, uh, can still go up, right? Like if you control for the, for the fox. But when you do these stochastic models, you will have certain amount of runs, certain percentage of runs where you all kill all the, uh, where all the rabbits get extincted. Yeah. Go extinct. Yeah. So that that so that's yeah. But yeah. So the one the the project that we did that with the actually here. Let me pause you for one second. Yeah. So so that that's a meta idea in the modeling. So that sort of comes before the math. Like a lot of times people don't realize there's especially in applied stuff. There's mm -hmm. things that happen before the math. So when you have you pick the problem and then you have to think: Is this more appropriate for a deterministic model or mm -hmm. a probabilistic model? Like that's a mm -hmm. fundamental first choice is not a right or wrong. So, so yes. modeling very much falls under the art category. And part of the art is understanding, for instance, in this choice, in this situation, what are the strengths or minuses of the two different models? And for what I'm interested in, which one do I think is most appropriate and or feasible? Actually, most appropriate usually includes feasible as part of it. And so you make your choice based on all your different constraints. So there's sort of an optimization problem in just startling, starting the modeling and what you do. Yes, I think for my students, for my math students, especially the ones that have been used to doing pure math, um, this is a thing that they just like, it, it drives them crazy, right? Because you are always used to finding the answer. So I have a student who's just gonna graduate with his master's on Thursday, he, he presents and he was, pure his entire career undergrad and then decided I want to do applied math. So he's struggling with the fact that the model is not perfect. And I keep telling him, Kevin, the model is never going to be perfect. The model is what we need to do when we model is figure out what is it that we want to get out of the model. So what questions do we want to answer and do the minimum amount of time, spend the minimum amount of effort, do the minimum amount of modeling needed to answer those questions in a relatively good way. 
Yeah, in a good enough way. Exactly. Enough way. Welcome to fair, false paradigms. Yes. So, so there's a false paradigm that there's a perfect model. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's per, it's, there is a perfect model in the sense of perfect for what you care about that's good enough, right? There, there's a fuzzy range of good enough ones. And so you yeah. gotta, the work actually comes up front. What's, what's my question? What's gonna be good enough? And then you go. And especially because his, uh, his motivation for going to applied math on his dissertation, even though he has never done applied math before, is I wanna see if I wanna work in the industry. And I want to tell him, Kevin, in the industry, nobody's going to wait two years for you to come up with an answer. Like, you need to come up with an answer like this, Kevin. So <laughs> you, better, you better do the minimum amount of work that gives you a good enough answer and tell the people that uh, told you to do this model or to answer this question, this is the answer and this is how good the answer is. So as, as long as you can give an answer and assess how good that answer is, we're good. We can move on. We can do the next model. You're going to get paid a lot of money. But like, it's gonna be very different than what you're doing with the pure math, so. Yeah, especially if you're in something like, for instance, finance, where, where a bunch of this modeling comes up, they want answers and they want quick, oh man, yeah. this, this yeah. matters, there's a lot of money at stake. So talk about, let, let's rewind for just a second, talk about agent-based modeling and stochastic modeling, because I actually haven't really even, I don't think the word random walk has come up yet in these interviews. So talk about like, maybe the Petri dish is a good example or pick one you like, but highlight the difference between these deterministic and these stochastic models so that people can understand a little more. Yeah, I'm gonna use the same, like, like my dissertation thing. So Yeah, please go, uh, go, go, go. You had that thing that uh, you have a square area uh, or a square domain and you have some bacteria, right? Mm -hmm. So bacteria makes decisions, even though we don't, you know, like bacteria makes decisions in when they're gonna reproduce or when they're not gonna reproduce or how long they're gonna take. So every little bacteria around has a little like internal clock there is a probabilistic distribution of uh, the same one that you do with queuing Poisson. <laughs> I always forget the distribution of names. I'm really bad with names, but I know what I'm talking about. So you have your little cells and they all have a clock that says, normally I reproduce within two days or whatever it is, right? But that might be two days plus or minus epsilon, right? So at some point between two days plus or minus epsilon, they're gonna divide. So, so for listeners, picture it's a, it's a distribution on zero to infinity. So it's only positive numbers because it, it models things that are gonna happen at some time in the future. So there's no, there's zero probability of stuff happening negatively. And it's basically just an exponential curve. So it's e to the negative lambda x and you normalize. And so it just, it slopes off from one all the way down and the lambda controls where the median is. Um, and then you can calculate, you know, what's the probability of it happening between one and three days while well, you integrate under that exponentially decaying curve between one and three. And so a lot of times you're trying to find what's the appropriate lambda and then you can plug it into your models. Yeah. And for many of these things, we have the lambda because we know around when the bacteria reproduces, but we want every bacteria to have different uh, times at which they reproduce. So they all have a little clock, they reproduce, then each one of the new ones get the, the new little clock and they figure out when they're gonna reproduce. And when they reproduce, in my case, we didn't model how they move, but they actually do move. Um, but in my case, we did have a little clock for them to actually become a biofilm. Mm -hmm. I should say what a biofilm is. And the way that I imagine a biofilm is like a, a, an apartment complex. So think about like a bunch of bacteria getting all together and secreting these like sticky little substance called extracellular matrix. Uh, it is really, it's a really cool thing it's a really bad thing, but it's a really cool thing because the bacteria figure out when this, they have, they uh, can hide on this extracellular matrix thingy. Um, they can become dormant and they can just chill there. And they're protected from a bunch of things. 
And one of the things they're protected from is antibiotics. So think about uh, if you ever had an ear infection, you always get an ear infection. Like it's not one thing that you do once and then you never have it again. Like if you have an ear infection, you have it now and then you have it every time you eat a lot of, I have it every time I eat a lot of salty food. And the reason is that once I eat a lot of salty food, I'm retaining liquids. The liquids become the, my ear canal because it has a little bit more liquid. And then the biofilm that lives there, that I don't care how many uh, antibiotics I've been taking, it's still there because it just chills dormant all this time. Decides, oh, conditions are awesome. I'm gonna reproduce now because there's water there. So then they start going around and they start reproducing and they start like making um, my, my ears get infected, right? So um, th that's why you do not want a biofilm. Because if you have a biofilm in a pacemaker, which is a kind of implant that we were trying to, I mean, we're not, we were talking about like pacemakers or hip replacements or stuff like that. You get a biofilm there, you gotta like uh, cut it replace out. Replace it. Yeah. yeah. And, and if it's your heart, you might die. In your heart, you might die. Yeah. And like hip replacement, you, you get, you have to get, take it out and put it back. Like it's a big deal. You don't want that to happen. So yeah. So welcome to the type of constraints that can happen in an applied problem. So mm -hmm. in a pride problem, you know, sometimes it, it's flexible. Other times there's a really rigid component. And so here, like from a biomedical engineer's perspective, you want to do everything you can to avoid biofilms. So, so it, it is a really, really, really important design feature. And that's also why you did want the, the enough immune response. Again, a big immune response is a really bad thing because then there, you, it's when you, when you have an implant rejection, right? Um, I, I always use my sister as, a, as an example because she decided one day that she was gonna pierce this part of her arm and she on just her, did it. On her own? My sister is like, like hardcore. But anyway, she put a thing right on her. And at some point it just came out because the body rejects it. Like the body says like, this is, this is not a human woman. What are you doing? So it rejects it, right? And it didn't get infected. But if I had gotten infected or if, it had, if she had had a really bad immune response, she would have gotten like fever and all of these things because the immune system is saying, what are you doing, child? So, which is what the immune system what the immune response and my mom <laughs> were saying to my sister, what are you doing child? So, yeah. so what you want is the proper immune response. One that won't allow the bacteria to reproduce too much and form a biofilm, while at the same time not make you go, not make you get sick with the with, uh, inflammation and all of these other things that can happen. Mm -hmm. So, okay, so we're going back to the- You got, you got a rectangle, a square grid, and, yeah. and you've got this, so you, so, you know, it's chopped up. So people can yeah. picture it. it's a big matrix, right? It's a matrix. It's, it's a, big, exactly it's a matrix. big matrix. Let's just say a thousand by thousand. Actually, yes. roughly in reality, how big was it, roughly speaking? Is it like 10,000 by 10,000? I think it was 10,000 by 10,000. Sounds about it might right. It 2,000 by 2,000. But yeah, okay, something we're talking on the order of thousands, thousands yes, to 10,000. Yeah, also, I was not a good programmer. So we'll talk about how long that program took to run. But anyways, you had... What I had is several matrices, one that would track how much bacteria there is, mm -hmm. one that would track where the neutrophils are. Mm -hmm. So the neutrophils, like if you think about a deterministic model, you would say the neutrophils always move to where there's more bacteria. Mm -hmm. But that's not realistic because on uh, neutrophils also make decisions and they're not perfect at um, smelling bacteria. So these neutrophils that I had would smell bacteria around them and with less probability bacteria around around them, like on a bigger circle, right? Mm -hmm. So they will calculate how much bacteria there was around them and then move, uh, let's suppose that, and it's uh, this is a really simple example, but there's eight directions, right? So we have like 
that way, that way, that way, like eight directions. Yep. Um, left, right, suppose, up, down, and the diagonals. Yes. So let's suppose that there's one bacteria in every direction, but there's five bacteria in that direction, mm -hmm. right? Oh, and so people, for people listening, in the upper left, because this left. also has oh, audio. Yeah. So the upper left, yes. Thank you. Um, so that means that seven have one bacteria. So there's seven bacteria plus the five, that's 12 bacteria. So there's five out of 12 probability that you're going to move that way to where they're on the upper right, where there's a lot of bacteria and one out of 12 to move any other place. So mm -hmm. you draw your dice that has 12 sides now and whatever you get, that's where you're going to move. So that's how we construct those models. And, and there may be more complex distributions. That's just, a, it, it, it may be that simple. So it depends on what the, but just so people know. And actually I haven't highlighted this at all, which is the idea of random numbers and pseudo random numbers. Cause that hasn't, mm -hmm. I haven't mentioned that once. So if people are sitting there listening and, and you're a high schooler say, or wherever you are, you're saying, how do you actually, how does the computer do that? So there are deterministic ways to simulate randomness. So computers are not, uh, probabilistic. Maybe with quantum computers, we actually can get actually fundamentally. Um, and some, there are some advanced things where you can use like heat coming from your processor to try and get randomness. But by and large, the randomness that you, the randomness you get from a computer is deterministic, yep. but you can, you can using fancy things or not so fancy things, create pseudo randomness that looks like randomness up to whatever degree of accuracy you want. So to take the simple example, like Dr. Pieta was just saying, let's say you want to produce a random sample on the numbers zero through nine. There, there are ways to, to create that where it'll spit out a number zero through nine, and it will be as close to a uniform distribution as you want it. And yes. so then there are ways to say, transform that into a normal distribution or whatever distribution you need. And so yes. the production of pseudo random numbers and how accurate they are is really important for a lot of things like the models Dr. Pieta is talking about. Yeah, exactly. So that's what we did. And we had like the matrix with the bacteria, the matrix with the neutrophils, and that was it. And then all the rules of how these things move and how, um, how the bacteria reproduce and everything, it depended on the coding of the protein that we were using. So what, uh, what, what I ended up doing is um, uh, running these kinds of things for all sorts of different percentages, like 100% albumin, 100% fibrinogen, and then 10, 90, 10, 80, 20, all of that, all of those things, running a hundred thousand simulations mm -hmm. and then getting the average and seeing how many times a biofilm is formed. That's what I would, I would speed out, right? And, um, and that's a common, so, so for it. listeners, that's a really common way to do simulations yes. where instead of when you're not doing the deterministic one, well, if I just run one, like it doesn't tell me much because yep. there was so much random choices. But the idea is that as you run higher and higher numbers, it's going to converge to the distribution of possible results. Yep. So you'll be able to say, hey, this seems to be the mean response. This is the outlier I want to avoid and so on and so forth. And, and this is kind of like what biologists did without us, right? What they do is they do experiments in rats. However, you cannot do 100,000 experiments in 100,000 rats because, first of all, I mean, the killing of the rats. I know that rats are not that popular, but like that's sad that you kill that many rats. And more than that, they're expensive and it takes a lot of time. Whereas the computer, even though I'm a terrible programmer, because it took 11 days to get the results from each one of these things, um, uh, if you were a better programmer, you could do, or had a, a non-graduate student computer, which I will say that. My computer was crappy. Um, <laughs> then you could get the results much faster um, than with the rats. So that's the idea. The idea is to work with a bi biologist so that 
the information that the biologists extract can inform your model and then the model can inform the biologist this is the, the, the combination you want to try next. Yeah. This is exactly what Dr. Sean Ryan, who another mathematical biologist, yeah. was talking I about. Know. It's they're, they're not to replace each other. They're to help each other. They yeah. each have strengths and weaknesses, right? The model is not perfect. It's overly simple. It's never going to capture everything. But it, what it's good at is doing a lot of stuff and being able to try things quickly. So you then sample and try to get you know, in your parameter space, what's interesting so that then your limited resources and experiments, you can focus on the stuff that looks most promising. And that's, and then they uncover stuff and give you better data. And that's the, the virtuous cycles going back and forth. Yes. So I think I was done with that after like two years. And like my advisor was like, we need to do something extra or different or more. And I had attended, attending conference, I cannot even say how important attending workshops and conferences. Uh, but there's a, there's there's a difference between conference and workshops. And workshops, you actually get to do things. It's like a it's like a mini class. So I went to a workshop uh, run by NIMBIOS, uh, which is in Tennessee. It's a it's an institute for math biology research. What was uh, the name again? Say say the name one more time. NIMBIOS. Uh, NIMBIOS. NIMBIOS. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Some people say NIMBIOS. Some people say NIMBIOS. But it's N I M B U S. In what? N I M B U S. Yes. Or B-I-O-U-S? B-I-O-U-S. Yes, B-I-O-U-S. Yeah. Okay. Or O-S. I don't know. You spell in other countries. So I will say that. <laughs> I'm really slow at spelling because like, yeah, it's not, yeah. But um, what was, yeah, yeah. Sorry, so in I that, cut you off. No, you're good. Uh, in that workshop, I met uh, Linda Allen, who's a really famous math biologist uh, at the uh, Texas Tech University. Mm -hmm. um, and she was doing something, uh, she had stochastic systems that were discrete and she was seeing when, she was trying to answer the question, when, does, when do these stochastic sy systems converge into a continuous um, uh, differential equation or a continuous uh, model? And I told my advisor about that. I wanted to see that because at that point in time, because this was like 2010, um, agent-based modeling was seen as something that is not real math. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think it has gotten a lot more acceptable lately. But back then it was like, no, it's not real math. Now that I see with, with COVID everywhere, I'm like really excited because it is math. Um, but I wanted to give legitimacy to my PhD because I could back then I could not have gotten a PhD with that uh, in math. So um, what we did then is try to um, describe the discrete equations of what is the, try to put it in equations what is happening in this model in, mm -hmm. in a discrete way and then uh, sort of imitate what the, uh, Dr. Linda Allen was doing, which is, um, uh, it sounds really, really, I tell my students this because it's really good that they know that I got my PhD in calculus one, calculus two. Um, what, I, what you do then is you break these, um, um, these, uh, these discrete uh, functions or these discrete uh, equations into Taylor series. Mm -hmm. And then you take limits when space and time go to zero so that you get a continuous thing. And then you get a PDE. And what, that's what, happened a bunch. So, so I, at least half the guests have highlighted the fact that a lot of what you do sounds really fancy and it boils down to calc. Actually, I, I think it was um, Ben Lenowitz. I loved his list of three. He says, in my experience, everything boils down to one of three things, linear algebra, calculus, or combinatorics. And you just yep. like, you, you boil everything down to that. And in the end, it's really simple with a lot of dressing to sort of cover all sorts of details, but it's, yes. it's simple. Yes. So Back then, because all the math modeling was, all the mathematical modeling was done with PDEs or ODEs, um, 
we got the PDs that we, if you approach the same problem through the PDs, what you're gonna see is like, well, it's clearly they're moving and they're moving in reaction to something. So there's, this is a diffusion reaction uh, advection equation. It has to be because things are moving, uh, they're growing. And so that's what the equation that you should get. And with the, the way that we did it, we got a diffusion reaction advection equation. Now, the really cool part about this, what I think is really cool, is that what we put in the ABM model, in the cellular automata model, was were things that were either measured in the lab or known in biology or very well approximated in the lab. How, how um, bacteria is growing, how, they move, how fast the uh, neutrophils are moving, all of these things. And when you do the modeling the other way, when you go from the PDE, uh, um, uh, from that way, what you do is you get the results and then you try to uh, estimate the parameters based on the results that you, that based on-, uh, on Oh, did you have a check for yourself? Did this end up giving you a bit of a check? Did it, did yes, it, did it, it came out? That's what we, that, that's actually how I got my, my, my PhD, uh, my, yeah, my doctorate. So when the way that we did it is, we got the actual the, uh, coefficients for the diffusion, the actual coefficients for the advection, the actual the coefficients for the reaction. We got all of those coefficients based on um, principles, how they call them, like, like, like the basic principles that you could get in biology. Mm -hmm. And then we were able to solve the PDE uh, numerically and compare it to the discrete uh, model run 100,000 times and see how they match pretty well. So that's so. So for for listeners, th this this trouble has been highlighted for applied mathematicians. One of the dangers, especially in trying to get your PhD, is oftentimes you care about a problem and you start building models, whether they be agent based or PDOD, whatever they could be, um, and you get some results. But then oftentimes that's not enough to get your PhD because you're you're not a biologist or you're not a chemist. You're an applied mathematician, and so the issue is how do you check? How do you make sure that you just didn't design garbage? It might be totally right, like, but what, what can you ground this in to give you some confidence in it? And so here you had a really lovely way to come full circle, which is build the model with biology, well, with stochastics, but bio biological inputs in it. And because you can do this approximation to then tie it to actual just math, you know, no, yeah. no computers, uh, PDE equations, then you, you do the analysis on the PDE equations and you check, yeah. did those PDEs that I thought I claim it's converging to, did they, did the numbers that I got from biology, did they, they match? That's beautiful. I really like that. Yeah, I, I was really happy. Like my advisor was really happy. We were very happy. Um, yeah, it was, it was a good moment. Yeah. So uh, after I graduated, I thought that that's what I was going to do. Like my, you know, like we all have like a goal, like you said, like I'm going to understand the quantum physics, so, you know, something like really, really big. To me, my really, really big goal back then was I am going to figure out what are sufficient and necessary conditions on discrete models so that they converge to PDEs using this. Um, mm -hmm. So, because I know that some don't, mm -hmm. but I know that some do because that one did. Yeah. So, so can I can I can I make the math or like figure out the math so that I know that I haven't worked on that. But <laughs> but that, but you know like that that was when I graduated. I was like, that's what I'm gonna do because I I was very curious about this program problem. Yeah. Well, talk, so, so actually keep going from there though. What, what caused the evolution? Cause you graduate and you, you get a job at Youngstown state. So, so did another problem catch your eye? Did you, when you knocked on biologist's door, find other things you wanted to work on instead? Like what, what, what was the transition? So I, I did like met, meet the, um, Dr. Marnie Sanders at Akron uh, doing the bone research. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was really cool. And I started doing that. Um, 
but I think also like it is the the HDHD. Like you, I I cannot like stick to one thing. I always have to be doing other things. Um, but I got I got interested in other things, in other different problems. And one of the things that I really enjoyed that I didn't know I was going to enjoy that much is doing research with undergrad students. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to like. I'm not the kind of person that says like, oh, this is a great problem for a student. Let me find a student that can do it because I'm not very normal. What I do is the opposite. I tell students, I won't work with you guys. And then they bring a problem to me. And then we try to figure out how we do that problem. So that way we have done things that are super different, like, like modeling vacancies in, in Youngstown, uh, mm -hmm. house vacancies in Youngstown and which uh, houses to demolish when you have a very limited budget and what to do with other houses. So we did that and that tends, uh, that turns out to be, we did it with a um, epidemic model. Mm -hmm. um, then uh, I, I work with invasive species because a student went to an REU in Hawaii and they saw the cocky frog, um, mm -hmm. which is a frog that is from Puerto Rico and it has invaded um, the islands of Hawaii. So now she wanted to do that. And lately I've been doing a lot of like for pre-service te teachers, they're interested in different things about how to better teach math. And we've mm -hmm. been working on that stuff. So like, I think more than uh, like abandoning my dream, I got distracted by all these really cool projects that students come and bring. Like another student I had, the, uh, she was very interested in wounds and how they heal. So we went to a biologist and got some um, information and we've been wor we, work we did some work with that. Um, we don't do, great depth because it's an undergrad student but i get to learn a lot of really cool stuff they get to learn a lot of really cool stuff and i don't know it's fun yeah no that's great well so, so it does sound like there is the common theme of um you keep being motivated for problems though and people so so yes. So, yes. so you know it, it the idea of just sticking to one idea of like trying to show the abstract pure math by itself you know it loses its its uh yeah its, for you because I mean, you I'm still curious but I'm also like I'm curious in a way that if somebody else do, does it I'm going to read the paper like not curious in a way that I'm going to spend more time trying to think about that unless I really run out of students which it's probably probably not going to happen yeah probably not going to happen yeah well so it does sound though also on your on your research then the common theme really is this sort of agent-based modeling like you you really that that's yes. that's that's the um because it, it does matter no one can be so versatile as to not have you know central tricks or central thing you know the the tool they like to use um and so in your craft of mathematics it sounds like you know a common tool you can keep coming back to at least with some confidence is this agent-based modeling yes i did like work on a so there was another workshop uh, for women in math biology and there you're placed with like five other women from all around the world there was one in spain and one in france back then um, and we were looking at how temperature affects the quantity and quality of your sleep. Mm -hmm. And that was all ODEs. Uh, okay. And then I did, I recently also did another paper on uh, Zika uh, modeling. So, mm -hmm. so the like, Zika, the, the, the disease, the, yeah. The disease, yeah, the, the mosquito-borne. Mosquito-borne disease, yeah, yeah. Um, and that was also um, differential equations. And then I did with some students work on recommender systems, um, which is data science, I guess. So it's like, with what like Netflix does to tell you, you watch this and you like that, so why don't watch that? Uh, we did really basic ones and applied them to 
you took this general ed class and you need to take a general ed class in this. Um, we recommend that you take that one because how you graded the other ones so that students graduate on time. So, ah. so really like different things though. Yeah, so, but I, I do not have the math depth on these other ones. The, the ODAs I'm getting a little bit better, um, mm -hmm. but the data science, I need a lot more work on, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm a big linear algebra fan, and that, that falls a little bit more on my, my end of things. I, I certainly have a, a fondness for those sorts of problems. Yeah, they're, they're fun. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I think, um, I think that that's probably a pretty good, uh, pretty good stopping point. This has been a, a lovely discussion of agent-based modeling and, and the practice of modeling and just finding problems and, and having fun in math. Um, yeah. This has been great. <laughs> I, I agree. This this has been delightful and refreshing. I mean, it's good for people to see. This is this is just a, a way that you don't often hear about people approaching math. I think it's a good one um, and, and an enjoyable one. Um, all right. So my guest has been Dr. Alicia Prieto. Thank you so much, Dr. Prieto, for joining me. Thank you so much for inviting me. This was so much fun. Great. All right. Well, until next time, everyone. Um, be well.